When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The basic notion of what we think we understand and who we decide is credible and who we decide should have a voice and have a truth that we listen to, all of that is wrapped up in the way they speak. So it's not just about their words. It's also about whether or not we think their voice sounds the way that we want it to. And I think that people are generally unaware of this. And then you can see a miscarriage in justice. You can see where somebody's giving testimony and it's just overlooked or not believed or not seen as credible. You're listening to Katherine Kinsler on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunt, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We really value our continuing education here at Psychologists Off the Clock. That's why we're thrilled to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education and Training. Praxis aspires to set a new standard in evidence-based professional development for behavioral health professionals. They offer live and online workshops conducted by top-class peer-reviewed trainers in contemporary behavioral therapies, including acceptance and commitment therapy, compassion-focused therapy, radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, and others. Praxis is the premier ACT training facilitator in the nation. 
with reoccurring workshops with ACT co-founders Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson, as well as a number of other leaders in the ACT community, many of whom we've interviewed here on the show. If you are interested in deepening your clinical skills, check out Praxis through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and there you'll find a $25 off coupon code to get started on your next training today. Hi, this is Yael here with Debbie. We're here to introduce an episode where I got to talk with professor and psychologist Katherine Kinsler about her new book, How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. This is a really important conversation because despite increased attention to ongoing social justice crisis, we seldom acknowledge a critically important area of injustice, linguistic discrimination. And in this episode, I have a chance to talk with Catherine about the research and the cultural milieu that we're living in and how language really has an impact. And I know, Debbie, that you have a lot of thoughts on how language really influences gender discrimination. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought this was really fascinating in your conversation. You talked a bit about how we use speech as a way of differentiating between groups, but that that can lead to a way to kind of discriminate, stereotype, shut down oppressed groups. And you talked about a few categories in the interview, but there are more I thought of. You know, we we have race, we have gender and sexual minorities, gender we also have disabilities, if disability affects speech, ageism, and I was thinking ageism sort of both directions, like with really young people, but then also with older adults. And you talk a bit about the gender issue. And I think as a woman that I could really relate to that so much. I think as a woman, there's sort of this narrow range of behavior that we're ha- allowed to have. And Jill just recently talked about that with Alicia Menendez in terms of likability and how we have to be assertive to get ahead, but we have to also stay likable. And it just gives us this very narrow range. And I think the same is true with speech patterns. There's almost this tone policing about how we're supposed to use certain types of voice and we get critiqued for the way that we talk. You know, you can't sound too high-pitched or ditzy. And I think that a couple of examples, you used the example of upspeak in the interview, mm, where yeah. you kind of sound like a little lift at the end of the sentence. Another one that I think is fascinating is vocal fry. Do you know what that is? It's where kind of like... You get guttural at the end, I think. I do it. Yeah, it's like a guttural sound. I don't know if I could do it on command, but I know I do it sometimes. (laughs) Oh, I just did it. Did you hear that? That, that. Anyway, it's fascinating to me because for a long time, people were critiquing this as something that ditzy young women were doing and that people were finding it super annoying. And it was... It's a way of silencing women for their normal speech patterns. But you know who else does it and never gets accused of being ditzy are posh British men Hmm. who are perceived as like highly intelligent. And so there's just such sexism and kind of a way of condescending to women. And I think, too, women and men have some just different styles of speech and I love the work of Deborah Tannen on this. She has some great books and articles. She's a linguistics professor at Georgetown. And she has some great research on this, how women tend to have like softer, you know, we're not as aggressive in our speech. We tend to apologize more. We're trying to be more relational, I think, in our conversations. And we should all strive to be like that. It's a kind way to talk. We're not trying to be one into one upmanship as much. But right now there's this conversation around how like women need to stop apologizing. 
And I've trained a lot of interns in my field and, you know, psychology interns who were being told that they needed to stop apologizing and they need to be more assertive in how they speak. And I get that, right, that we're trying to encourage women to be assertive. But at the same time, it felt a little bit like tone policing to me, like, oh, you can't talk in that more relational way, that softer kind of more apologetic tone. And so it's just to me, it's really fascinating. And I know that this happens with racism a lot, too. And I think as women who have our voices out there in the world, it's like, on the one hand, we want to sound really good on the podcast. But on the other hand, it's like we're subjecting ourselves to potential criticism and I think any time a woman speaks out, we are subject to that. Yeah. Well, and I think even just that comment of we want to sound really good is a really important one because good is so subjective. And one of the things that Katherine Kinsler talks about, both in our conversation and in her book, is that good really is subjective to both the speaker and to the listener. And that a lot of what sounds good to each of us is really influenced by our heritage, by our culture, by who we affiliate with, by things like our sexual orientation, by the political movements that we get involved in, by the age that we are. And so I think it is one of these things where if we're not careful, we can get very restrictive in ways that are really exclusionary and work against the movement to promote social justice. And I think because language is such an overlooked aspect of how social justice plays out, this conversation just couldn't come at a more critical time. And I I hope that you all take some of these ideas and enact them to become better listeners, to open up to learning new languages. One of the ways that I've started, I am really interested in having my kids get exposed to other languages and specifically to Hebrew. One of the ways that we do that is just through an app that I love called Duolingo. So some of these things can be not that hard to access, but it really starts with awareness of the importance both of how we're impacted by language and how language can impact how we orient towards other people into groups and then considering what kinds of action we can take. So we really hope that you enjoy this important conversation with Katherine Kinsler. Dr. Katherine Kinsler is a psychology professor at the University of Chicago. Her research sits at the intersection of developmental and social psychology, and she focuses on the origins of prejudice and in-group, out-group thinking with an emphasis on understanding how language and accent mark social groups. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and other media outlets, and the World Economic Forum named her as one of the 50 scientists under 40 working to shape our future. She's here with me to discuss her new book, How You Say It, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to speak with you. Oh, well, I'm so excited to have you on. I was just saying before the recording started how much I love this book, how eye-opening it is, and how influential it is just in terms of how we think about the role that language has both on who we are as people, how we interact as groups, and in this time where we're thinking a lot about prejudice and stereotyping. I mean, this book is really powerful. Thank you so much. So I've actually long been fascinated by how language, including accent, shapes us. And so I was really excited when a scientist and author that I revere, Emily Oster, interviewed you for her parent data newsletter. And then it turns out that you two ladies are old friends, which is so neat that both of you are coming out with such amazing work. Yeah, I mean, she's been like a major inspiration to me. You know, we've been friends for a long time. um, And I think she's somebody who really shows how you can be studying these topics in an academic way and then think about how 
you know, people in the real world are the audience that you really want to engage with. And so she's really been an inspiration for that. Yeah. I mean, I think the model of her bringing science in a really applied way, but making it digestible for consumers that don't have the scientific background is really powerful. And I I think that you do a really similarly impressive job with your work. So, um, So I'm excited to share that with our audience here. Well, thanks. So I'll just kind of start off by sharing a little bit about my personal relationship with the topic of language in general. So I was raised by Israeli parents who immigrated before I was born. Um, And my father had perfect English, and it was because he lived in Canada from when he was six to eight, which are the formative language development years, and his parents spoke English. His Hebrew was also perfect, and my mother has a very heavy accent, and they only spoke in Hebrew to each other. But my siblings and I were raised in America and spoke mostly English. I'm the middle child. And so if you look at my siblings, you can see how language really can influence even just within one family, cultural affiliation, because when my sister was born, they spoke more Hebrew at home and there was no English in the home. And by the time my brother arrived, who's the youngest, his older siblings only spoke in English. And so his connection to the language of Hebrew is much less. So it's a really interesting thing that you can see, even just within that short time span of us being raised within that one household. And I wonder if you can share a bit about what your and many of your colleagues' research teaches us about the power of language in terms of identity development and what expected and then surprising ways does it influence who we are and how we live in the world. Well, I just love your personal story. And, you know, I tell a kind of a related story about a family that moved to the U.S. and spoke Spanish. But then by the time, you know, the last, the third grandchild uh, grew up, again, the family had kind of moved to speaking really mostly English. And so I think your story probably resonates with a lot of people, which is that, of course, with that, you know, the first kid, as we all know, kind of lives in the world of adults, right? And then by the time you have subsequent children, they live more in a world world where they've got these peer kids around. And so their language exposure could be quite different. I think that your background and your story just highlights one of the reasons why I really wanted to write a book like this, which is that language isn't just academic. It's also tremendously personal. And so the way we speak is such a critical part of our lives, our family, our histories, and it can really bring people together. And when people maintain that heritage language that might connect them to, you know, past generations, even if they live in a place where that language isn't spoken more widely, I think it can be really positive for kids and for families. At the same time, being in a new place and a new social environment brings out new language learning. And so the choices that families make over languages and over their culture, cultural affiliation can be really profound. Yeah. And I think that that was something that I just really connected with in your writing. I think it was something that I'd always had a hard time articulating, but just from my personal experience, it's an interesting thing, this idea of cultural affiliation, because largely I see myself as American, but I do have this real connection to Israeli culture. And yet there's a, and yet there's a part of me as an American that feels a little bit outside of it because I was raised in such an Israeli household. And yet when I go to Israel, because at this point my Hebrew is so rusty that I don't really feel Israeli. So there's this sort of, I'm kind of a part of both groups and I'm kind of not a part of either group. And I think that that can really be um, 
an interesting and, as you said, profound emotional experience for people that are raised in these multicultural households. And, and language is a huge part of that. And I imagine that, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but some bilinguals do say this, that their feelings of identity can shift sometimes depending on the language they're speaking and, you know, the current culture that they're in. So there's studies of bilingual speakers who, when they're speaking one language or another, some more typical cultural attributes about that, you know, that language or that community can come out, say, you know, the the mannerisms they use or their studies of people's memories. And so the kinds of things you might remember in one language or another might be very different. Um, there's also studies, and I want if this was your experience, depending on, I mean, if you were, depending what language you had first, but some people report that the language that they learned first, that real language of childhood, often is the more emotional feeling language for people. And you can see this reflected in the kinds of decisions that they make as adults when they're speaking in one language or one language or another. Absolutely. When I hear somebody speaking Hebrew, there's just something like warm and emotionally connecting that comes up for me. And and I thought that that was a really interesting, I had never known that there was research backing that up. But, but yeah, you, I, I, it's so interesting how you describe that native tongues really are imbued with emotion and second language is less so. And you talk about this really interesting research that the decision-making process that we might engage in might differ depending on what language we're sort of speaking in our own minds. Yeah, so a lot of our decisions can be informed by different factors. So you might have more of an emotional tug towards one decision, or you might have more of kind of a cool, calculated reason to weigh through um, weigh through different ideas. Now, they're not always neither way is necessarily right or wrong. So just to give one example, researchers have looked at moral decision-making in a native tongue versus a language learned later in life. And so one classic thought experiment in moral decision-making and moral philosophy is the trolley problem. So a question of imagine that, you know, you could make a choice and you could, you know, sacrifice one person to save five people. Is that something that you would do? And so you could imagine different answers to that, right? It might depend on who the one person is or who the five people are or what the situation is or what you'd have to do and so forth. So philosophers often manipulate this. But the general finding with language is that when people are speaking in a later learned language, they take more of the utilitarian response, the idea of, well, let's add up the cost and benefits. So, you know, sacrificing one to save five could be worth it, could be worth it. Versus if you're speaking in your native tongue, you often have more of an emotional or visceral response. So the idea of doing anything to say harm one person, even if it's for saving others, could feel really morally wrong to you. And so you see this flexibility in the kind of factors that we see as most important in our moral reasoning. Yeah. And just like a pop culture reference is that that um, moral experiment was talked about in The Good Place, which is so funny. Yes, <laughs> I saw that and I loved that. Absolutely. Yes. And and. One of the really important things that you go into a lot of depth about in, in your writing is that language binds us. So there's like this cultural affiliation and that we can detect linguist, linguistic differences very early in life. And I want, I want to have you talk about that. And then I want to sort of talk also about how it can divide us. But what's amazing is that your research and, and your colleagues' research shows that even babies at a very young age can detect those linguistic differences. And from an evolutionary standpoint, that's a really interesting thing. And the other thing I'd love to hear you talk about is how 
linguistic differences can be more powerful than the differences like in skin color. I mean, that's sort of what we talk about a lot in our culture right now. But actually, linguistic differences can be the basis of a lot of prejudice and stereotyping. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the babies part first. Um, so babies are these remarkable linguistic creatures, as anybody who's, you know, interacted with a baby knows that in just a really short amount of time, they can become fully proficient speakers of a language and adults struggle, right? So if you've taken a foreign language class as an adult, you know how tremendously difficult it is, yet you have a three-year-old who's only been here for three years and is a fully functional speaker, um, of a fully proficient speaker of the language that they're exposed to or the languages that they're exposed to. So right away, babies seem to have the ability to detect differences in language and they start to get better and better at distinctions that are native to them. So languages that they've heard and they start to lose the ability to detect contrasts in a language that they don't hear. And so in that sense, babies are getting tuned up on their native language and losing some abilities for foreign speech. Now, I think that language, it's not just about uh it's not just about communicating information. It's also about social life. And so language is deeply social and it unites groups of people. And if we think about our evolutionary history, languages change really quickly. So imagine two groups, you know, way back when in our evolutionary history, who started to live on two different sides of a mountain, say, you know, they would be separated by this mountain range. And over a couple generations, they would start to sound different. So in that sense, because languages are so quickly evolving over generations, and particularly when groups don't come in contact or when they don't like each other, that people's speech reflects their changing social communities and social lives. So for a really long time in human evolution, language has been a tremendously important marker of group membership. Now, if we think about differences in skin color, in modern culture, in modern American culture today, there's tremendous systemic racism at multiple levels of society. But if you go back in our evolution, differences in skin color are actually very recent for humans. That you take that, you know, mountain range example, say, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, two groups on a different side of a mountain would have soon started to talk differently, but they wouldn't have soon started to look different. So in that sense, you know, I think when you look at babies, early social thinking, I think that babies come into the world really attentive of language in a way that they're not initially thinking about skin color um, as having this immediate social importance, but rather race and racism is something that's communicated by society and children are little sponges picking up on their culture. Yeah, so so little kids split out groups based on language pretty naturally, but the separation by skin color is something that's more socially derived, taught within our culture. I think babies see differences in skin color. You know, perceptually, they just like language, they start to get better at discriminating faces that are familiar to them. But I think the, um, the tremendous prejudice and bias that we see against different groups of people and embedded in society is something absolutely that kids learn growing up in a racist society. And it's not something that babies are naturally doing by themselves. 
you have like a series of studies that you describe in your book about exactly this, these studies that sort of mix and match Mm -hmm. language and skin color, where you really show the power of the language, the native language in affiliation. Yeah. So one study where we did this was with five and six-year-old children. Now these were white monolingual English speaking kids in the U.S. And there's a long and sad history of research showing that by around this age, by around the end of preschool, kids and particularly white kids will start to express race-based preferences. So a white kid might say that they like other white children. And what we did was we showed, we gave kids, these, these were white kids, we showed them white and black faces and kids, many kids did express preferences for other white faces. Then what we did was we showed them people who spoke in a native versus a foreign accent. So in this case, the foreign accent happened to be somebody who was a native speaker of French speaking in English, although I actually think that probably doesn't matter. Kids aren't thinking about French per se. They're just thinking about who sounds familiar and who doesn't. And kids liked all the native accented speakers more. And next, what we did was we tried to combine the two variables. So now these white kids saw somebody who looked familiar and spoke in a less familiar accent versus somebody who was of a different racial group membership, yet spoke in a familiar accent. And what we found was that kids preferred people who spoke in a native accent of their native language, and their preferences based on accent seemed to completely trump their preferences based on race. I think that early in life, when kids hear how somebody sounds, they're making a lot of social meaning out of that. And they are starting to pick up on racial attitudes that society is projecting to them. But I think that they're still developing and still, you know, hopefully that leaves room for some optimism that race-based attitudes might be changeable based on different early social environments. Yeah. And the other point that you make within that is that we're so focused on prejudice and stereotype that's based on skin color that we sometimes miss the way that linguistic prejudice can come out. And it is sort of natural. And, you know, in some sense, it's not even necessarily so menacing because it's just a part of our biology to kind of affiliate with more similar people because that's, you know, evolutionarily adaptive. But it is something to sort of be paying attention to, even as our kids are learning language and, and sort of separating, as you say, people at their linguistic joints. Yeah, I think there's a few ways to think about that. So one is that I think we're dramatically underthinking about the role of linguistic prejudice in society, that we often have this mistaken belief that language is just about communication. So if somebody didn't do a good job communicating with you, that's kind of their fault. Um, But actually, so much of how we communicate and how we perceive other people's voices is about our own prejudice that we bring to the table. And so when somebody doesn't like the way someone sounds, they might just shut down and stop listening. And that's really not fair. The other thing we might think about is about how race and speech can be very intertwined. And so it can off, it can often be a very insidious form of racism when somebody says, oh, well, that person wasn't speaking in a way I like, and I'm not being racist, I just don't like their speech. But again, so much of how we think about somebody's speech is because of the cultural stereotypes that we attach to different groups of speakers. And we feel somewhat licensed to feel prejudiced against speech when in fact, we really 
probably shouldn't. And I think people should be much more aware of it. Yeah. And so this kind of gets beyond even language and into accent and, or dialect and accent. And I mean, you gave this really terrific example from Aladdin, the movie, but but this was true about a lot of Disney movies. I think that Disney and other um, you know media organizations are trying to do better, but you know, where the evil characters would always have an accent and it was often a Middle Eastern accent. So it wasn't just that their skin was darker. It was also this accent piece that we don't pay as much attention to because we're so focused on the racism that is based on skin color. Yeah. So, you know, researchers have looked at kids programming and I think this is a really important uh, piece of input for children. And so if you're just looking at one film, it's really hard to know what's biased and what's not. Now, of course, there could be really, you know, blatant, explicit bias. But sometimes you might see something like, okay, so this protagonist happens to speak in a way that sounds standard to me. And this person who's a bad guy happens to speak in a way, as you said, the, you know, the Middle Eastern, or often there's um, a Eastern European accent that's paired with a bad guy. And then here's this person who's kind of fun and, you know, seems sort of sexy. And that person speaks in a French or an Italian accent. So, right. So you can imagine this adding up now. It's just one film. It's hard to know. But what researchers have done is looked at a whole bunch of films together. And then you do see these. Yeah, you see these patterns. Exactly. And so one thing that comes out that I think is pretty interesting is that when you look at all the people who speak in what somebody might consider to be a standard um, American Accent, although of course the term standard itself is laden with, you know, probably some assumptions that we shouldn't be making. But what you see for those speakers is that they might be more likely to be good than bad, but some are bad. It's actually more the case that they represent all of the human emotions, you know? So it's like they're the real people who you see as having all the complexity that humans have. Whereas when you look at people who speak in a foreign or what's seen as a non-standard accent or dialect, they're somewhat more, you know, smaller characters, often negative and often more stereotypic. And so in that sense, you don't see the full range of humanity represented for people who speak in a non-standard way. Yeah, it's this sort of under the radar way of dehumanizing those that are different and giving those that are more similar to us, like the the full human <laughs> experience or sort of like persona that that gets represented yep I think that's right yeah and then I mean and so that's just sort of a way that we inculcate our our young people through media and, and probably confirm a lot of those things through more adult media you give also this other example and you you give a number of examples but this one really struck home for me where you talked about the Trayvon Martin case and you describe how testimony from his friend Rachel Gentel who was on the phone with him in his last minutes before he was shot and she gave like the 6 hour testimony and jurors described her as hard to understand and not credible because she spoke in a dialect of African American English and and you talk about how that kind of linguistic bias is almost permissible in ways that other forms of bias aren't among enlightened and progressive people, which, which I think really needs more attention. I agree. And I'm glad you brought this up. 
the basic notion of what we think we understand and who we decide is credible and who we decide should have a voice and have a truth that we, you know, that we listen to, all of that is wrapped up in the way they speak. So it's not just about their words. It's also about whether or not we think their voice sounds the way that we want it to. Um, and I think that people are generally unaware of this. And then you can see a miscarriage in justice. You can see where somebody's giving testimony and it's just overlooked or not believed or not seen as credible. And of course, you know, it's not to say that there weren't, uh, that there weren't other aspects of the testimony that you might, you know, reasonably say, okay, you know, I believe this and I don't believe this, but you have to engage with it. And I think what happened in this case was that Rachel Jantel's voice was just overlooked jurors report afterwards that they didn't even discuss her testimony during their many hours of juror deliberation. It's as if it just didn't matter, which feels incredibly unfair. And one thing that you talk about too, is this myth that heavy accents make people hard to understand, but that we underestimate our comprehension of people with accents that are different than our own. Can you describe how that might happen? Sure. So there are studies where people will report, oh, well, that person had a really heavy accent and I couldn't understand them. But then when they're given a more objective measure of, okay, what did that person say? And they're able to absolutely report back everything that that person said. So I think it's important to remember that a lot of communication or your feelings about what you understood are not the whole story and people often underestimate their abilities to comprehend. Now, it's not to say that there's no ways in which communication can be impaired by people speaking across languages or with different dialects. You know, absolutely, you might be a little bit faster to process speech that's familiar to you. That makes a lot of sense. But I think that the limits of our comprehension are actually often broader than we think that they are. Yeah. And you write that, um, or you describe research suggesting that people actually adapt pretty quickly, even mm -hmm. for accents that are heavier. I mean, you also make the important point that whether you perceive an accent as heavy is pretty subjective. And I, and I thought that that was a really interesting point because my mother is often described by people who aren't familiar with her accent as having a pretty heavy one where I don't hear it at all. Yeah. And you can get, you know, lay people in a lab hearing the same exact voice. And some people will say, oh, that's a really heavy, hard to understand accent. And other people will say, oh, that's just a light accent. And another thing to point out, of course, is that we all have an accent. So it's really easy to think like, oh, well, well, I don't have an accent, but you know, all these other people do, but that just doesn't make any sense. Right. So everybody has a manner of pronunciation. Everybody has an accent. Yeah, absolutely. But, but this sort of sense that people that are not in the majority are different creates a lot of stressors, undue stressors for them. I mean, you had emailed me this um, when we were preparing for this episode, that for non-native speakers or someone who speaks in a non-standard dialect, that life is stressful. Yeah. You may feel, and, and it may be true that other people aren't taking you seriously or are judging you. And I think it's important to remember, if that's the case, that you're not imagining it, that if a listener shutting down the person speaking knows it and feels it and hears it. And so I think it's just important to remember that when you're communicating on both sides, that the listener can play a big role in how well the communication goes. I think that that's such an important point that just be right. And it sort of creates a lot of responsibility on the listening that communication really is two sided. So if somebody does have an accent, 
that you owe it to them and to yourself to really give yourself a chance to adapt and to, you know, create some flexibility around how you listen. Um, And it's sort of an interesting time to be thinking about this too, because I've spoken to a couple of people who have accents who talk about the masks being an additional hindrance Mm -hmm. because where people used to be able to sort of, you know, read lips a little bit to yeah. aid with the understanding. Now, even that's not available. And so I think we, it, it is a really nice time to be extra sensitive and, and compassionate and and willing to try to meet people, even if they, they sound different than us. I think that's right. A little bit of extra compassion goes a long way. Um, I think about the same thing with virtual communication. And so when we're all talking over Zoom, you're missing a lot of the gestures and other kinds of nonverbal sources of information um, that you just don't have. So it's like, it feels misleading to me. Like you feel like you're talking face to face and it should be great, but actually you're missing some parts of the communication and that can make it a lot harder. Yeah. I'm just curious if other thoughts come to mind in terms of what we can do better in being more egalitarian, anti-racist, sort of more welcoming to people who not just look different than us, but also sound different than us and and raise a generation who do better than we've done. So I think one thing we can do is to be aware of speech in our own lives. And that might be in a couple ways. So, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is about prejudice against the way people speak. And I think just having that out there in popular awareness and in our, you know, when we think about prejudice and bias, I think it's really important. I think another thing we can do is to think about uh, the way that we're listeners, as we just talked about, and that might be listeners in a lot of different ways, right? But trying to not shut down and trying to understand somebody's perspective who's different from your own. And then the third thing might be to think about the words that we say. So, you know, a lot of what I talk about is how you say it, but also the way that we talk about other groups of people often brings this kind of essentialist, which is often a prejudiced way of thinking. It's thinking about different social groups of people as being really deeply different in some meaningful, essential way. And that's how a lot of stereotypes and prejudices and biases grow. And so particularly when we're talking to kids, it's much better to talk about people as individuals rather than talking about whole groups of people, which kind of gives the illusion that they're all the same. Yeah. So, so not just how you say it, but what it is that you say and and using language that is more individual specific Mm -hmm. rather than generalizing across group. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, Hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Psychologist Off the Clock is happy to be partnering with Dr. Rick Hansen and his six-week positive neuroplasticity training. You can check out more about the offering on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and there we're going to be offering you a $50 off coupon code that you can use to sign up. These powerful methods will be useful to you, and if you're a mental health professional, there's also opportunity to bundle it with his professional course, which is ideal for therapists, coaches, educators, managers, trainers, and healthcare providers. So register now through our website, offtheclockpsych.com. We want to let our listeners know about a free online conference coming October 14th to the 25th. It's called the Embodiment Conference, and it gives you free access to incredible teachers, practical tools for these difficult times, and a supportive global community. They'll have a couple of our Psychologists Off the Clock former guests like Stephen Porges and Dan Siegel, and other incredible speakers like Tara Brock, Kristen Neff, and Sharon Salzberg. So to check it out and to get your free ticket, you can go to theembodimentconference.org. And we'd also like to invite you to a virtual book club with our co-host, Jill Stoddard about her book, Be Mighty. That's happening in October. And if you go to our website and link to it through our sponsors page, you can get a 15% discount at checkout. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. You talk about the story of David Thorpe, who put out a documentary by the title of Do I Sound Gay? And he talks about changing his linguistic style after coming out. It's interesting to think about how speech changes over time and how, and then I guess that kind of fits in with the other myth that we're predisposed to certain languages, which is, you know, has really been debunked. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, language is both really fixed and really changeable. And that's one of the ways in which I think it's so fascinating. So it's really fixed in the sense that when you speak, you're often revealing to people the voices that you heard when you were a child, because it's so difficult to master a non-native language or accent into adulthood. At the same time, our voices are always changing, even just in a moment-to-moment way, that if you're having a conversation with somebody and you like each other, often your voices shift to become more alike. And so the example that you gave is that when you know people say, what's gay speech? Is there gay speech? And there's a lot of stereotypes out there that are not true. So for instance, there's the stereotype of something along the lines of a lisp, which isn't true at all. And in fact, there's a tremendous amount of variability among people's voices. It's not to say that gay men sound one way and straight men sound a different way. That's not true. But there are some subtle differences that can come out in some gay men's speech, but it has to do more with hyper-articulating vowels so vowels that are actually a little cleaner and crisper. And I think that this is about be like any linguistic community. When you're in a new social community, there can be a way of speaking and you take on the properties of that group. And so social groups, you know, drive language change. Yeah, which is so cool to think about that, you know, that who you group up with is not only driven by who you're affiliated with because they sound like you, but also that you make changes together. And when you think about, and you talk, you talk a bit about this, but like teenage groups that they sort of develop their own mini dialects that bind them together and sort of allow them to create some uniqueness for their own peer group. 
Yeah. Yeah. So adolescents are kind of breaking out of the, you know, what the old guard is doing. And that's a really typical part of adolescence. And so when adults were kids, probably somebody didn't like the way that you were speaking. And then as an adult, it's really easy to not like the way an adolescent is speaking. And it's just going to keep going around in circles like that. Yeah. And then as you were, uh, one other small point that I wanted to also bring up is this idea of gender differences and how we speak. And there's this word called upspeak that honestly I'd never heard of Mm -hmm. before I began podcasting. And I had on as a guest, a really popular evolutionary psychologist who has a huge following. And when he retweeted our podcast episode, it got like a lot of comments. And one of the comments was really negative about me and how I upspeak. And I had no idea what he was talking, what this um, listener was talking about. I looked, I looked it up mm-hmm. and it's uh, ending the sentence as if it's a question. Yeah. And I guess that's more common among women than men. But, and there's some prejudice, but it's sort of a question about what the meaning of it is. Yeah. It's so complicated. And I will say, I don't, I don't notice that in in your but I'll say that I will sometimes find myself doing it to some extent and you know I was a teenager in the 90s and so I think about clueless as my cultural reference <laughs> um and so it's pretty you know it's pretty common in women of my generation um to have grown up with those with those uh speech models and it's so complicated because on the one hand no way of speaking is good or bad, right? The way you speak reflects your social life and your social role models and what you heard. So it's not good or bad. At at the same time, it gets really complicated. And so people can make judgments um, like, you know, oh, a woman who doesn't know what she wants to say, and then it can feel really sexist. Um, and so it's definitely a complicated one. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a really good point that, you know, there is no one right way. And there's also no one way that will be pleasing to everybody. Yeah. There was um, an NPR article that I was reading recently that because I was sort of curious about like what voices people like to hear and they make it. And it was sort of this analysis of, of the voices that are on the NPR news radio. And they really explicitly say there are no anchor people that are liked by everybody. You know, there are just people who are, you know, a, are appealing to one group of people and less appealing to another, that there isn't kind of this across the board, um, you know, target that you can hit. Yeah, I think that's right. And it changes over time, you know, so as younger people get older, well, the what's considered the right way to speak or the standard way of speak is of speaking is going to shift. Yeah. So I wanted to maybe finish by talking a little bit about the value of monolingualism versus bilingualism. And there, I think that there's kind of some confusion out in the, the world at large, but it seems like there's a good amount of clarity in the research world about this. I think there's confusion in the world at large about monolingualism. And I think part of that confusion is thinking that Maybe monolingualism is just a little bit cognitively safer or easier or better in some way. So we call this the monolingual myth. And it's the idea, you know, some sort of an intuition like, well, if your kid just learns one language, maybe that's just going to be a little bit easier and leave more room for the other stuff, like the reading and the math and the really important learning. But that's really not how our minds and brains work. And so little kids are 
perfectly able to learn more than one language and all the other stuff. Um, now, the one place where some people have said, oh, well, would a bilingual kid be delayed at all? Um, and I like to, I, I don't think a delay is the appropriate term at all for a bilingual language learner. Instead, I would just say there might be a slight linguistic difference when you look at the vocabulary that a bilingual kid has in each language, that at first it starts off a little bit smaller than a monolingual kid. But of course, that's not exactly a fair test because they're learning two languages. So if you add up what researchers call their conceptual vocabulary size, so do they have a word for, you know, X object or concept in any language, then their conceptual vocabulary size is just as large as a monolingual kid. Um, and if anything, their overall vocabulary is probably greater if they're learning words in, you know, more than one language for the same item. Yeah. So I think the research is definitely in, in showing that bilingualism can be a tremendous benefit to people for their lives, for their cultural experiences, for their earning potential later on. And it also may bring them some advantages in terms of being able to take the perspective of others. Yeah. And I think that that piece is so is so important. I wonder actually if you can discuss this, the car experiment where the researchers were asking kids to pick up a car of a particular size and the differences in perspective taking between kids who spoke only one language versus kids that were fluent in two. Sure. So in this study, we had kids who either were monolingual or bilingual, or we had this, this group of kids who were in the middle. So they were exposed to more than one language, but they weren't bilingual themselves. And we asked them to engage in a perspective taking task where they could see everything, but they, they saw a bunch of objects, but some of the objects were occluded from the view of the person who was sitting across from them. So imagine that you could see three cars, a small, a medium, and a large car, but you can see that I can only see the medium and the large car. So when I say, oh, I see my small car, can you give it to me or can you move it? Now, if you were just listening to the literal content of what I'd said, you might reach for the smallest car because I said small car. But if you're thinking about what I see and know, and you see that I only see the medium and the large car, well, when I say small, it probably refers to your medium, because for me, that's the smallest. That was a little convoluted. I hope it made <laughs> sense. But what we found was that monolingual kids, they weren't, you know, they, they were perspective taking to some extent. And so roughly half the time they would take what was their smallest car and half the time they would perspective take and, you know, take the car that was the medium. And kids who were exposed to another language or who were bilingual themselves were much more likely to take the person's perspective and to reach for what was their medium car. So what I think is happening is that by being in a world where multiple languages are spoken, kids are just getting training a lot of the time and taking people's linguistic perspectives that you're thinking about, oh, well, grandma talks like this and she can talk to her friends. But when she's over here, we speak this way or we speak this way at home. But at school, people wouldn't understand us. They speak like this and so forth. And so you're just getting trained up in thinking about other people's mental states. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is just incredibly powerful. I mean, I'm a clinical psychologist. So the idea of exposure to multiple language, building kids' ability to perspective take and even step into somebody's shoes in a more empathic way just seems incredibly powerful. And I think it's amazing that you don't have to necessarily 
teach your child another language, but even just that exposure. And it kind of reminds me just of, you know, the idea of traveling to other countries. It just helps you to see like that whatever bubble you're living in is just one bubble and that there's a huge world out there. And that exposure to language can be another avenue towards enlarging your children's world. I think that's all exactly right. And in some ways it makes it easier. So for some parents, you know, it's wonderful if you have the opportunity to raise your kids in a bilingual environment, but many parents don't easily have that opportunity. And so of course, schools is one really amazing way to do that. But many schools, particularly in the U S don't teach additional languages early in schooling, but even knowing that if you're monolingual and your kids go to a monolingual school, that whatever exposure you can give them, even if it's somewhat list, somewhat limited to different people and different languages, I think it's really beneficial. Yeah. And there's so many available ways these days. I mean, you can download videos from YouTube or wherever, you know, that are um, kid videos of songs in different languages. And it just seems like something that, you know, with awareness, it's not really too difficult to carve out, but it has immense power in terms of creating greater empathy and and really working on, you know, breaking down some of these stereotypes and prejudices that can otherwise get naturally built up. And I hope this can happen more and more in schools too, that schools can really be the perfect place to consider language learning as a fundamental part of education. Now, part of that is say, if you're in the U.S., kids who speak English, helping to teach them other languages. And then part of it is also teaching kids who speak a different language at home, English really early on in school. And so language learning in both directions is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gosh, I, I feel like this this book is so powerful. And it's it's also, I just have to say, it's a really fun read because, Catherine, you offer a whole bunch of research in really easily easy to digest terms, but also all these fun pop culture references to Disney movies and, and his, recent historical events that really show some of the ways that language creates prejudice or creates bonding. So it's a really fun read but it's also just a really powerful read. So for anyone who is wanting to work on their own biases and build a more enlightened world, I I really recommend this book. It was fascinating. It was fun. And it really did leave me feeling empowered to take steps to break down prejudice and stereotypes. So thank you, Catherine, for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for your amazing questions and for sharing so much about your own personal story. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. 